Hello, and welcome to the Sinobabble podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the Hong Kong extradition protests for the very last time. But I thought it would be a little bit more interesting if we spoke about them less as a series of escalating events and tried instead to put them into some sort of broader context in which we could discuss China generally. So today we're going to be talking about dissent and protest in China in order to try and discover whether the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, has a formula for dealing with dissent or if they just wing it, basically. Recently, events have become a lot more violent, especially during July, which saw the attack on the Legislative Council building on July 1st, followed by multiple clashes between police and protesters, and most recently, attacks on locals in Yuanlong in northern Hong Kong by suspected triad members wearing white and carrying sticks, metal poles and other objects. The atmosphere remains tense and posters keep popping up around even quiet parts of town, warning about police negligence, gang brutality, calling Carrie Lam a liar, and videos online show people being beaten and even hospitalised. More than one death has occurred in connection to the protests, and it certainly doesn't feel like it will be winding down anytime soon. It's possible that things have escalated to their present state because Xi Jinping, China's president, doesn't want a harsh crackdown that would be reminiscent of the Tiananmen Square incident of 1989. Not to mention, the continuing trade war with the US means that the Chinese government has other things on its mind, and the stability of one locality may be trumped, so to speak, by the need to maintain the principal legitimating factor of the modern CPP, namely continued economic growth. However, I think it's unlikely that Xi or the Communist Party in general is just neglecting the issue or procrastinating while they deal with other more urgent matters. I remember reading a long time ago that the CCP deals with over 180,000 protests and mass movements every year. And while most of these are aimed at local level issues rather than systemic change, the fact that we don't hear about all 180,000 of them and the fact that the CCP is still alive and kicking suggests that they're handled with some sort of relative tactfulness. It's probably fair to assume that this number of protests means that the CCP have come up with some sort of formula for dealing with local unrest, which can be adapted depending on the demands of the situation. And that's really what I want to try and explore in today's episode. So I want to compare and contrast two cases of local unrest and look at how they were managed and resolved, although the Hong Kong case hasn't been resolved yet, to see if any sort of pattern or system can be found. Now, I know that comparing just two out of hundreds of thousands of protests doesn't seem like a lot, but I think it's going to have to do for this podcast because, first of all, I don't want to get too bogged down with too many details and just lose the point completely. And secondly, these are actually two quite high-profile cases that I happen to know a lot about. The first is, of course, the current Hong Kong protests, and the second is the Wukan protests of 2011. The main reason I chose the Wukan protest is that, first of all, many people have actually heard of it before, and it was one of the very few Chinese protests to break on international news, And secondly, I wrote my undergraduate dissertation on the issue, so I have lots of notes already prepared that I can just use, which is really handy. Even though these two instances are very different kinds of events, the protesters have very different desires, and the scope and scale of the protests don't match up exactly, I think an argument can be made that they were, and are, being handled similarly by the CCP, suggesting that there's a pattern for dealing with local unrest, 
And I think examining this pattern might be able to help us understand how the CCP controls its population, if only a little. If you've been listening to the previous episodes in this mini-series, you should be mostly up to date with what's going on in Hong Kong. I'll add any pertinent new information as the episode moves along, but otherwise I think it's best to start with an overview of what happened in Wukan eight years ago. At the time of the incident in 2011, Wukan was the largest village in Lufeng City in Guangdong province, with an estimated population of between 12 and 20,000. The protests, which began in September, were caused by the news that local government officials planned to sell over 400 acres of land to mainland development company Country Garden. The government stood to gain 1 billion yuan from the sale of what residents saw as collectively owned land, and what began as peaceful demonstrations escalated into violent protests, resulting in the expulsion of all government authorities from the village. However, although this was the first incidence of large-scale protest in the village, this was not the first incidence of a land grab that the villagers had witnessed. For the past 20 years, the collectively owned land in the village had been sold in an endless stream of illegal transfers, leaving villagers with only a fraction of the land they had possessed under the communal system, culminating in the sale of the last piece of land in the village. The villagers were not only frustrated with the fact that their land was being sold off bit by bit, but also because they were not receiving the benefits of revenue gained from these land sales. Incidents involving the confiscation and sale of land by officials are not uncommon in China. Every year, about 4 million farmers have their land confiscated, and even when they are compensated, it's usually for only a fraction of the resale price. About 65% of the 180,000 protests and demonstrations a year mentioned earlier are related to land grabs. A key factor is that farmers do not own the land outright, but are given the right to work the land, which has been allocated by the government for a certain period of time. This means that local governments can take back the land at any point, which is often in their best interests, as land sales form up to a third of local government revenue. This often leads to corruption, as local cadre abuse their power to profit from illegal land use. And so, in the 1980s, the village election system was put in place so that these cadres could be held accountable for their actions and removed from their positions at the behest of the villagers. You may be surprised to hear that China does actually have some semblance of democracy, even if it is only at a grassroots level, and it doesn't really affect much outside of village life. As the party dismantled the communes after the Cultural Revolution in the 1970s, people began to see the cadres based in villages as parasites and became unwilling to listen to them. To counteract this problem, the CCP set up village committees, elected bodies that were supposed to be autonomous of central power, whose members were chosen by a ballot every three years. The success and autonomy of these village councils varies depending on the wealth and size of the village, and as VCs are actually answerable to the local party branch, the amount of control villagers have over their own resources, as well as over the candidates put forward for election, can range from quite a bit to none at all. In the case of Wukan, for example, the elections had been won by the same cadre, Xue Chang, for over 40 years. Wukan is also a relatively rich village in the richest province in China, which meant that meddling by the party in the elections was more likely than not. One would expect that in wealthier areas where collective revenue is higher, villagers would strive for greater control over village affairs. However, it's actually in these areas that boss politics are most likely to develop. In other words, 
instead of giving the people more authority, high levels of economic development actually consolidate the power of incumbent leaders as the people become more dependent on their authority and the leaders themselves gain the economic means to co-opt and bribe their subordinates and superiors into ignoring official regulations for the election process. The villages of Wukan had previously been indifferent to village politics, though the results were always the same. However, as they began to notice that the revenue from land sales was not being used for the benefit of the community, and the gap between the rich and the poor grew larger and more apparent, they became more willing to demand their rights. When some villagers heard that the cadres were going to cast votes on their behalf to vote for Xue Chang in their place, they literally pulled the ballots out of the box and ripped them up. I think it's here that we can start to draw our first comparison with the events currently taking place in Hong Kong. In both Hong Kong and Wukan, we can see examples of peculiar democratic systems as sources for unrest when the population has a particular gripe with the local government. Upon trying to resolve any problem that they have, locals find that the democratic institutions are not set up to support their best interests, but are actually geared towards maintaining centralised control. So how has this played out in Hong Kong's relatively young democracy? Actually, in Hong Kong, voter turnout has been on the rise for the past 10 years, arguably as Beijing's influence has extended deeper into Hong Kong society. In 2008, turnout was 45%, whereas in 2016, two years after the Occupy Central protests, turnout jumped to 58%. The results may not quite be what you expected, however. Since the early mid-2000s, the Democratic Party, which advocates for full suffrage, has been losing seats and is currently the third largest party behind the two pro-Beijing parties, the Liberal Party and the DAB. This is partly because the number of political parties has increased over the years, with a broader range of democratic and local issues being represented in the Legislative Council, including, for example, Youngspiration, a party formed after the 2014 protests in order to protect local Hong Kong interests and call for the self-determination of Hong Kong. However, these parties seem to be no match for the pro-Beijing camp as a whole, which currently holds 40 out of a total of 70 Legislative Council seats, with the pro-independence or democracy groups holding just 23 seats. Here we have to note that just under half of all seats are voted for by what's called functional constituencies representative bodies for different interests, such as education, transport, or commercial constituencies, many of which are made up of bodies, which basically means corporations or legal entities. In both Wukan and Hong Kong, the apparent manipulation of the electoral system by the wealthy and powerful for the CCP's benefit was the underlying cause of the protests. In the case of Hong Kong's functional constituencies, for example, they were able to secure 22 seats for the pro-Beijing camp in 2016, no doubt because many of them rely on the central government for funding or may even have pro-Beijing leadership themselves. The inability of the people to have their problems considered, let alone dealt with, by what are supposed to be fairly elected representative bodies effectively meant that the majority of people had no power to control or change things. Another similarity between both Wukan and Hong Kong is that both cases can be viewed as purely local issues, which is a big factor in how they're dealt with. In both cases, grievances are aimed at local authorities. In the case of Wukan, local leadership selling land without authorization, and in the case of Hong Kong, the local government trying to pass a bill without fully consulting the people. 
This allows the CCP to structure their response in a way that seemingly abdicates central responsibility, whilst also allowing the party leadership to exert as much pressure as necessary on local authorities to get the problem solved. If anything goes wrong, then it's also the fault of the local authorities. And when you're dealing with tens or even hundreds of thousands of people, this is very likely to happen. Let's look at Wukan first. So, in the first few days of the Wukan incident, villagers stated that policemen severely beat people at will, charging into the crowd and injuring a number of children as well as peaceful elderly protesters. The indiscriminate attacks on the protesters by around 400 riot police seemed a little over the top given the circumstances, and several protesters were also arrested and rumours began to spread that a child had died from his injuries. With the local leadership seemingly in a weak position, the central government is able to play a sort of good cop, bad cop, appearing understanding, maybe even sympathetic to the protesters at first, but ultimately siding with the local authorities. In Wukan, though the government assured the protesters that their issues would be resolved in September, in December, three local representatives were suddenly arrested, and further protests broke out over accusations that Representative Xue Jinbo had in fact been beaten to death while in custody. In this case, the protesters actually managed to force the police and local communist leaders out of the village altogether. The party then set up a blockade around the village, and a standoff ensued between both sides, with neither side backing down for over a week. With local authorities unable to take control of the village, senior provincial officials stepped in to remedy the situation, promising to crack down on corruption, return the dead man's body, free those arrested, make the village's financial records public, dismiss and investigate two local officials identified by the villagers as responsible for the incident, redistribute the land back to the villagers and institute free secret ballot elections, which took place in 2012. In this way, the CCP was able to balance its image as a benevolent state, with its reality as a highly centralised authoritarian government, whilst also keeping the image of senior officials pristine when dealing with cases of dissent, at the expense of lower-level officials who seem relatively disposable. In the case of Hong Kong, the central government in Beijing has expressed their support of the right of Hong Kongers to protest freely in accordance with the rule of law. They've left it up to the local police in Hong Kong to deal with anything that gets out of hand, and, like in Wukan, this has led to the growth in negative feelings towards the police among the general public, and a growing rift in society as to whether the police or the protesters are the ones causing the most harm. There's been a fair bit of speculation that the PLA, the Chinese army, may eventually be brought in at some point to quell the protesters. Personally, I think this is pretty unlikely, because that would take a direct order from Xi Jinping himself, who, as president, is also the head of the Chinese military, and then that would mean that any civilian casualties would be a direct result of his intervention. Letting the local police handle the situation means that the central party figures can shirk responsibility and can't be held directly responsible for any injury or loss of life. If senior officials are then able to step in at a later date and resolve the situation, they'll essentially be seen as the saviours without having any blood on their hands. But in addition to this, it means that any underhanded tactics, such as attacks on protesters by gang members in white shirts, can be used effectively without being able to pin them on the party directly, even if there is overwhelming evidence to support the idea that the party is probably involved. In Wukan, there were also reports of thugs that were hired by local officials and local policemen 
to break up the protesters, which suggests that this may actually be a common tactic used by the government to spread fear among potential future protesters. This hasn't actually worked in the case of Hong Kong, however, as on Saturday the 27th of July, a week after the attack on protesters by the men in white shirts, protesters took to Yuen Long once again to call for the police to be held accountable for not responding to repeated 999 calls, as well as the demand that Junius Ho, a pro-Beijing legislator seen shaking hands with one of the men in white shirts, be investigated. This protest was not endorsed by the police, and in the evening, protesters again clashed with riot police, who used tear gas and rubber bullets, and some protesters were arrested for unlawful assembly and damage to public and private property, including a police vehicle. By not authorising the most recent protest in Yuanlong, the government was able to spin the narrative in their favour, painting the protesters not as protesters but as rioters, as they did in the case of Wednesday the 12th of June. Some media outlets have also reported that while the white shirt wearing thugs may partly consist of gang members, some were also reported to be local residents who just didn't support the protesters and wanted them to stay out of Yuanlong. In this way, pro-Beijing media can portray the idea that the thugs were actually trying to bring peace to the situation, shifting some of the blame onto the protesters, despite them not actually throwing the first stone. Control of the media narrative is a really important tactic employed by the CCP when dealing with unrest. In the case of Wukan, media reporting was banned altogether on the mainland, and search terms on Baidu and popular social media sites such as Weibo were scrubbed of anything to do with the protests. Several search terms relating to Hong Kong are also blocked on mainland sites, though there seems to be some more general knowledge of what's going on by more internet-savvy citizens. In general, however, there has increasingly been a media blackout on the mainland, as the Chinese Communist Party ensures that no image or mention of the mass protests get through, whether on social media, on TV, or in newspapers. On Weibo, the term Let's Go Hong Kong was blocked, with the platform citing relevant laws, regulations and policies as the reasons for not showing search results. The same search query on WeChat did not yield any results related to the protests, and some people have even reported that messages that they've sent to their friends on the mainland regarding the protests have been blocked. This might seem a little bit heavy-handed to an outsider, but it can actually be argued that tight control of the media reporting during the Wukan incident was what allowed the party to resolve the issue without it spreading to other locales or being misreported and blown out of proportion in foreign press. The party were able to deal with the situation in a sort of sterile, isolated way, which, despite its authoritarian overtones, did effectively solve the situation, and it did end up with the proper democratic institutions being installed in the village. It would seem that the best and most logical step would be for the party and Hong Kong's local government to concede at least some of the protesters' demands before the situation escalates any further. While this could end in local leaders being fired, the local issue would be solved and the people appropriately quelled. Though they have relatively good control over mainland media, unfortunately, Hong Kong is a bit more open to the world, and so the CCP is not able to control the international narrative which means it would probably be in their favour to act faster than they have been so far. This is especially because Hong Kongers do not seem willing to back down just yet. It may take the stepping down of Carrie Lam and the freeing of those arrested to turn things around, as it did in Wukan. 
promising to review the electoral system and also look into police brutality would also be a move that could possibly move things along much faster. Carrie Lam has said that the bill is effectively dead, though she has refused to retract it completely. If she did, it would at least be a sign of the government's willingness to give some ground and therefore the possibility of eventual resolution. Without this sort of action, it's difficult to see when the Hong Kong protests will end. And without a complete resolution, problems could keep flaring up again and again in the future, as it actually did in Wukan. Although the protests were initially resolved peacefully in 2012, in 2016 the case flared up once again. And this time the party was less willing to negotiate and took much quicker and more authoritarian action. This could be the case with Hong Kong, especially as the CCP's power over the territory grows and all semblance of independence or democratic leanings will be probably erased by the year 2047. In summary, the CCP's formula for quelling dissent seems to be to let local problems be handled locally so that the central government can avoid getting its hands dirty whilst also projecting the image of overseeing the issue safely from Beijing. People's anger is then directed at local leaders, who can be removed and replaced as necessary, with no damage to the central authorities. As protesters' demands escalate, they can still be met, but this also allows the government to paint the protesters as uneducated or unreasonable, which therefore justifies increasingly harsher measures taken by the police, which is then sometimes actually supported by onlookers who rely on state-controlled media for their information. A big difference between Wukan and Hong Kong is the level of Western support and attention. Even though Wukan did get a lot of outside interest, and some academics even formulated the idea of a Wukan model as a potential to revolutionise China's fledgling democratic systems, Hong Kong is slightly different, as many Western nations essentially see it as one of us. In other words, a democratic capitalist state that places a high value on global finance and trade. Despite this outside support, China will always exercise sovereign rights to control dissent, and it doesn't feel the need to disclose its methods to outsiders, as it doesn't care about fostering any sort of global community, but instead is far more interested in protecting its local interests. This means handling Hong Kong as if it were any other city, or locale, in China, dealing with the matter from as local a political level as possible, making examples of certain people, appearing sympathetic, but at the same time demanding respect. The CCP's power is predicated on the idea that the people understand that they do not rule themselves, but are ruled over and allowed to participate in the system at the behest of the CCP. So that's it for this episode, guys. And like I said, that's it for my coverage of the Hong Kong protests. I only wanted to do a handful of episodes because it's not really my area of expertise, but as I'm here, I thought I might as well try and help shed some light on what's going on and try and put a more nuanced perspective on it than what you might get from the 24-hour rolling news or your social media feeds. I hope you've enjoyed these Hong Kong episodes, and I hope you're looking forward to jumping back into the 1930s in the next episode, where we'll start talking about the Nanjing decade again. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in next time.